What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of ScreenSpeak, the podcast that's all about movies, life, and so much more. I'm Jordan Anderson. This is my podcast, and as always, I am thankful, grateful, and appreciative that each of you have come by and give this episode a listen. really does mean the world to me. I'm not just saying that. I truly mean it. Um, if you haven't already done so already, go ahead and hit the follow button, okay? Go ahead and hit that follow button. Helps the growth of the show. Helps everything with ScreenSpeak continue to gain momentum. And that all starts with you hitting that follow button as well as the bell. What's that bell do, you might ask? Well, it's going to put a notification on your phone. So then that way, anytime I upload a new episode, you'll be among the first to see it. And you'll be like, oh, cool. ScreenSpeak has a new episode out. That Jordan guy, he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to movies, and I like listening to him, and he has interesting people on sometimes. Okay, sure, I'll listen to this. Something like that goes through your thought process, and then you're listening to ScreenSpeak. So please, go ahead, hit the follow button, hit the bell, help ScreenSpeak continue its momentum, and help it continue to grow. That would be appreciated. Uh, And speaking of growth and speaking of appreciated, check out social media. Check out Instagram. ScreenSpeak is also on Threads. What's threads, you might ask? Well, I'm not really 100% sure myself. I'm still figuring it out, but it's basically Twitter, uh, except less less nasty, I guess. Uh, I'm I'm not really sure. I've been told by people that are using it that it's supposed to be like a a better, not-so-toxic place like Twitter is, but I don't really know. I feel like it's only a matter of time before threads will eventually reach that toxicity level that Twitter um, has so famously accomplished, but who knows? I'm not an expert on that. What I am an expert on is plugin, I guess. So let's, let's review. Okay. Follow, hit the bell and also check out screen speak on Instagram and threads. And you can also reach out anytime with any questions you have sponsorship opportunities, cross episodes. You got a podcast. You want me to come on it? Something like that. I'm not sure. Go ahead and check out the email for the podcast. All of that including all the plug information I just mentioned, is in the description of this episode. So go ahead and check that out. Okay, plugs are done. Hang on, my cat is like wailing in the background. I gotta gotta take care of this. One second. What? What do you want? No. Go. Get. Get. Does everybody else do that? You know, make make uh, demonic noises to to get their cat to stop clawing at the door, stop pawing at it. What the heck is the deal with that? I I don't know. I don't get it. I think what the deal is right now, like why my cat is doing that, is because we got a second cat. That's right. There is a second cat that is living in this household, and it has its food and and residency. And by residency, I mean it's box that it poos in and whatnot. Uh, it's in my home office right now. And along with that is its food and water. My current cat seems to have suspicions about this cat, but I suspect it really is just trying to get a crack at its food. So that's why it's acting like it hasn't eaten in three days and, and doing the whole malnourishment acting treatment, which is a, a bunch of baloney because I, I take care of the cat. But in any case... Cat is away. Let's go ahead and talk about what's going on in this episode. Who do I have on here? What are we doing? What the heck is this all about? <clears throat> so with me on this episode of Screen Speak is actor, producer, German dialect coach, history buff, uh, antiquities man himself, Mr. Bern Wittenben. 
This is a man of multiple talents for sure. He's just one of those people where when you talk with him, um, he's clearly seen a lot in his life. He clearly has a lot of lived life experience and is really a man, I think, of multiple talents and has a lot of uh, unique interests in life. Uh, I first connected with Byrne when he and his producing partner, Jorg Rocklitzer, were promoting the film Reveille and doing a screening of it at the Cedar Rapids Independent Film Festival uh, earlier this April in 2023. So when I had initially met with the pair of them, I had just watched the movie. Um, they were in the lobby. We, you know, we hit it off. And then I said, hey, just come on over to my space that I had set up at the festival. And let's talk about this movie for a little bit. And it was pretty, you know, it, it was pretty relaxed, pretty impromptu. I didn't really have like a full plan going into it. I just wanted to talk to them about the movie and just kind of see what I could get out of them. And I thought for what it was worth, it was an enjoyable conversation, albeit a short one, but it was an enjoyable conversation to have with the gentleman. Now, fast forward a little bit, Byrne actually reaches out to me. So this was his idea to go ahead and do this podcast. And the reason he was reaching out to me is because the film that they were screening, the one that we had talked about, Reveille, this World War II independent film, is getting a wide release, which is... Really, really exciting for not only all the cast and crew that went into making that movie, but I just think for independent filmmakers, any time they can get one of their films out into a, a wider audience to have more people have the chance to see it, I think it's a big deal. And and considering, too, that their movie is not something that had like a $30, $40 million budget, uh, I believe in the conversation that you'll hear, we do talk about the budget at one point, and it had something like maybe like like $200,000. I'll have to listen to the playback again to get that exact, but it's not not any big money, even by independent film standards. But with that being said, Reveille, the movie that we're going to be talking about again on this episode, is getting a wide release on Amazon and Vudu on August 4th. So you can definitely check out the movie. Obviously, after listening to this conversation, I would very much encourage you to do that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that that's that's how this all kind of happened is that this wide release is happening. Byrne had reached out to me and said that, hey, why don't we go ahead and talk about the wide release of the movie? We can get more in-depth on things and it'll be good for your podcast. It's good for the movie. And I'm like, you know what? That's great. That's fantastic. Artists helping out content creators or however you want to look at that, but it's creatives helping each other out, and I love that sort of thing, and I was all too happy to do it. Now, as far as the recording experience went, it was really, really cool. Um, Byrne lives in Walford, Iowa, which is about, I want to say it's about like an hour, hour 20 minutes from me, so I took a little bit of a road trip. Uh, this was on a Sunday when I recorded this episode. And drove out to his place. He he showed me around. And let me tell you, I'm not going to like, you know, disclose a bunch of stuff about his home and, you know, his address or anything like that. But let me tell you, this guy, he told me that he liked antiques. Like he told me that he liked history and things like that. And I believed him. I did. But when I got a look inside his house, I was like, holy hell, this guy was not kidding. I mean, I'm talking like wall-to-wall antiquities and and not even like it wasn't like like I didn't get like the hoarder vibe. It wasn't it wasn't like that. I I would have maybe, you know, done a backpedal and gotten the hell out of there <laughs> if that was the case, if I had gotten any sort of weird vibes from the situation. But uh, he he really just amassed a a really interesting collection. 
Um, specifically, one of the things that he was showing me, and they actually showed me uh, how it works, is this very old uh, music player. Um, I got I got to look up the name of it right now because otherwise I'm going to have a complete blank on this. Uh, let's see, it's a ph- phonograph. Is that a thing? Yeah, phonographs. So they had a whole bunch of different phonographs there, and he showed me how some of them worked, and, and just fascinating, fascinating stuff. So aside from all the antiquities and him showing me around, uh, we we actually did the recording in his garage. That just proved to be the best space to do it. And we talked about a lot of really interesting things, talked about a ton of interesting things. Um, we get into Reveille pretty in depth. We talk about, I would say it's complete journey from start to finish as far as production goes. I mean, everything from just the script coming together, the cast coming together, the money coming together, the actual production shoot itself, post-production, public relations, getting the film to actually get a wide release Everything and everything with that we covered. We covered we covered all of that. But I actually think my favorite piece of the conversation that you're going to listen to is the section where we get into the practical advice for getting a movie made. Because Burned explains to me, and, and you know he was very clear about this. This was his his first movie. He had never really thought that he would ever get an opportunity like this. And beyond it being his first movie, he really had a a very extensive hands-on relationship with this movie. I mean, everything from his performance in the movie uh, to advising um, historically, just to making sure that there was historical accuracy on the movie, uh, given the time setting that it's in. Uh, He also did a lot of work with the German dialect for the uh, non-German speakers, because in the movie, there's, I believe, three different languages that are there. There's English, uh, German, and there's also some Polish dialogue as well. Um, And he was also an executive producer on the movie, which means he helped to, you know, get the financing together and find a distributor and, and, and do all that production work in the in the background of the movie. And what I really enjoyed about him explaining this was he was just giving very practical, tangible advice for any independent filmmaker that wants to get a movie made. Um, and it, again, and I say practical and tangible because it was not like, you know, just, oh, you have to have a, a good team and you have to trust each other and you have to, you know, come together. Like he, he didn't use any of those buzzwords. He was very specific. I promise you, you listen to the playback of this episode. Anybody that has any interest in making a film, there are pieces of advice in there that would be useful to anybody that is going on this journey of getting a movie made. So I definitely, definitely recommend you taking a listen on that and, and seeing what you think because I I was pretty riveted the whole time and and fascinated that he was able to be so insightful about it as well considering, again, that this was his first movie. But Byrne himself is an interesting guy. He's, he's a smart guy. He has, again, a lot of life experience. He was born and raised in Germany, immigrated to the U.S. in 2012, and he became a U.S. citizen in 2021. Um, for his actual background, he's a trained machinist. Uh, he was in the German military at one point. He has a master's degree as a water landscaper. And then again, in addition, like I said, he's an actor in this movie. He's a producer. He's a dialect coach and is an all-around history buff for sure. So really, really fascinating guy. I was really honored to be able to sit with him uh, for about two hours. I mean, we, we, we had a really solid conversation. And, and again, we got into a lot of stuff. 
We also talk about the use of live rounds on set, which he filled me in was something that drew some controversy onto the film. Now, I'll leave it to you to listen to the conversation and decide for yourself if using live rounds on a set is actually controversial or not. Um, And of course, with that subject, we also talk about the unfortunate incident that took place on the set of Rust, the Alec Baldwin Western movie, where I'm not going to get into all that, but just by saying Rust and Alec Baldwin, you'll probably know where I'm going with that. But we get into that as well, and I definitely think it is very interesting to hear Burns' perspective on it. And I weighed in where I could, but honestly, didn't need to say that much. I mean, Byrne does a lot of the talking in this conversation, but it's really not anything that I had to overly fill in gaps and whatnot because Byrne just has a lot of life experience and history to share. And again, I really appreciated just being able to sit with him. I appreciated being able to help promote this movie. I I am excited that it's getting a wide release because it was one of the movies I enjoyed, I would say, the most um, out of all those movies that were being played at the Cedar Rapids Independent Film Festival. Like, you could say it's in the top five. I'm not going to say number one, uh, but it was certainly an enjoyable film, and I'm excited to see that it's kind of getting out of its festival circuit and it's going to be available for everybody, again, on August 4th on Amazon and Vudu. so Reveille. Again, that's Reveille. Check that out, August 4th, 2023, this year, on Amazon and Vudu. so definitely check that out. Um, if you do decide to watch the movie, let me know what you think about it. Comment with whatever it is that you're listening to this on. You can reach out on social media in any which way you choose, but let me know what you think about this movie when you do watch it on, again, August 4th on Amazon and Vudu. So with all that being said, I I really don't think I have anything else. I'm just grateful and, and happy to have you back here on another episode of Screen Speak. So thank you again so much for listening. All that being said, guys, thank you all so much again for checking out the episode. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Byrne Wittenben on the World War II independent film, Reveille. You always drink your coffee just straight up black? Yes. I'm going to say, you ever done like creams or sugars? So some people get overly fancy, Never. I think, with coffee. I'm like, Never. you don't need to. Like, no. It's fine, just the way it's it is. just the opposite, because if you drink black, you actually get the real flavor of coffee. Mm-hmm. As soon as you put cream in it, you take the flavor of coffee away. It's just dil- diluting yeah. it down, basically. Right. Um, so, Burn, it's very nice to actually see you again in person. Um, just just us two this time, too. No offense against Jorg. It's, it was wonderful having him on, but sometimes you can kind of get more into the heart of things when it's just one-on-one. And being in person, too, I, I definitely think helps. So I do appreciate you taking the time to follow up with me, reach out. This is your idea, actually, for this episode. Do you maybe mm-hmm. want to explain why you wanted to do this? Yeah, our movie is getting to be released on August 4th, and we it was our first feature production we ever did, mm-hmm. and so we collected a lot of experience throughout it. 
And it's being released on Amazon, right? On Amazon, on uh, uh, Comcast, which mm -hmm. is a cable, and on Voodoo. That's that's nice. That are the three we have so far. There is a couple more in the pipe, mm -hmm. uh, but we will release it also online now, step by step. Get the information gets out when and where it will be available. Was it difficult to get the release on the streamers, or, or uh, what was the path to, to making that happen? Uh, basically, we have a, a distributor with Buffalo Eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, get a distributor is a tricky part. If sure. you get the right distributor, then they take care of all the connections to the streamers and, and connect you there. And how, how did Buffalo A get connected with, with Reveille? Uh, actually, I, I research distributors online. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of black sheep out there. So that's a problem you have to figure out. And if you look a little bit online, you can find what do, you, what do you mean by black sheep? Uh, there's actually uh, companies out there. They call themselves distributors. They take your material, uh -huh. put it out, make money with it, but don't pay you. Oh, I see. So, yeah, so, so they're they're not very honest with their practices. Right. And, and there's quite mm -hmm. a few of these black sheep out there. Right. Uh, and uh, so first you have to figure out there's a couple of things you need to figure out. First, you need to get rid out of your selection all the black sheep. Mm -hmm. So then you have a selection of distributors which have a good reputation. There's quite a few out there too. Sure. Yeah, yeah of course. And then you have to figure out the distributor which actually fits for your movie. Mm, good point. Yeah, so because there's also some distributors do more romances, others do com comedies. Right. Next one is more action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have to look a little bit into that too, because if they are more action oriented and you have a comedy, that might not necessarily bring you the connections you want to have. Well, and from a marketing perspective, I would imagine that these distributors, they've put out other pictures. They may be similar in nature, so thereby they know the audience that they're marketing to. Right. So that, I'm sure, definitely, definitely plays a part into it. And then when you have, it's also, for when I, when I selected that a little bit, I looked also how long are they already active. Mm. So that gives you a little bit an idea. Buffalo 8 is now, I think, 12, if not 15 years. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Market. So that's already a pretty good uh, span. Where are they based out of? Uh, LA. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the reputation they have is good. They actually are called as a distributor, <clears throat> as the one which are coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's quite a few others out there which are established, but they are also very settled. Mm -hmm. And uh, as an independent uh, filmmaker, you want to have somebody who is established but still hungry. Yeah. And Buffalo 8 is still one of these companies that are hungry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that was good for us. Yeah. And when we got in touch with them, they, they want, that's the next thing is you also have to build up some trust because what they are doing is they want to see the product. Sure. So you can pr protect your product by putting a watermark on it. That's a possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but there you have to go at some point, you have to open up and just show your product. If you don't show your product, you will not get a uh, distributor. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it's very important. And before do your research, figure out what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is the reputation? What do you find out online about them? And then from there going, you have just at some point to make the step where you say, okay, right. I have them researched. Everything I know from them is good. Uh, they are in the right niche where I'm, uh, my movie is. Mm -hmm. And then you go from there <clears throat> and, and, and just 
get in touch with them. Then yeah. we will tell you we want to see the product that we can make an estimation from it. Then you send the product and if everything works out and the quality of your product is right, that's another important part. Mm-hmm. If your product lacks on quality, don't even try. Right. Yeah, then they watch it. And then from there, the whole um, deliverables and all of that gets started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you make your contract with them. And then when they have all the deliverables where you approve your copyright, uh, that you have all the contracts with the actors right, that all your releases for properties are proper, the contracts and all of that. And you have that basically delivered to your distributor. Then they start to get in touch with different sources. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> so for Reveille, you know, we talked about it initially when we first met. Now, granted, it was kind of at a festival. I'm um, not kind of at a festival. It was at a festival. Uh, and we just sort of went into it. We didn't really have like a, a clear direction for the conversation. But on this one, we're really going to dive more into the the fully fleshed out putting together of this film, I would yeah. say. Um, I just want to know, I guess, first, I mean, we talked a bit when we first met about how this came together, but um, maybe walk me through when you kind of got introduced to the project and then why you're just, you're still so passionate about it, even at this stage in the production for mm-hmm. it. Uh, Jörg, who is right now, by the way, in Germany and works there on a reenacted documentary with, with, with a friend of ours over in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically approached me and said, hey, there are some guys, they want to make a war movie and uh, that could be something interesting and they are looking for an advisor and that direction. <clears throat> and I was supposed to do that, but I have to go back to Germany for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine to jump into that role? So that's how I got introduced to the project of Reveille. What then happened is we had a, a kind of a telephone meeting mm-hmm. where Michael Ackermann and Mike Burke, they were already involved in and, this. And Mike Burke's the armor of the picture, The right? armorer, but also was was uh, responsible for the uniforms and, and okay. a lot of that thing. So wore, uh, wore different hats. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you have that in independent movie making. Sure. Uh, a lot of people wear different hats. So yeah. when you hear what I all did, that's also different hats yeah. in Rivoli. More yeah. than just an actor in the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so they approached me and they pitched their idea. Their idea was to create a movie, a war movie playing Mm -hmm. in Italy in 1943. Very detailed, very correct and without the cliché, usually goes with war movies and Germans. Right. Germans are all Nazis, they are all bad and... uh, uh, they hate Jews and all of that. And these cliches you do not find in Reveille. Reveille is based on the soldier. Mm-hmm. On the soldiers from the American side, on the soldiers from the German side. It's not based <clears throat> on the political bullshit which was going on at that time. Right. And, yeah. and also just from uh, just from like the, the movie's point of view and whatnot, being from the soldier, it's also not very action heavy. I mean, there's a couple action sequences in the movie for sure, but I think a lot of World War II movies, you know, as, apart from the political cliches you mentioned, you know, people conjure up big, you know, epic grand battles of like D-Day and things like that. And this is much more of a contained character-focused picture. Reveille is a picture which tells a story you find in real war. Yeah. If you go right now to Ukraine or Russia, 
what you see in Reveille, that is what right now there has happened. Mm -hmm. And when you hear there in the daily news, you hear here is a little skirmish, there is a little skirmish. The big battles yeah. are very concentrated for a very short period of time. And that is, of course, what a lot of the classical Hollywood movies have, Normandy, uh, Stalingrad. And you look at them, <coughs> they are big battles. And yeah, they are in war too, but that's not Reveille. Reveille is one of the skirmishes and mm -hmm. it tells the story. What happened there and it goes very intense into the humanitarian part, mm -hmm. which has happened in this situation. Yeah. So there is a, there is a whole motivation. Yeah. And it doesn't put any heroism on the one or on the other side. Right. It just shows what happened. It's like, We take the viewer on the hand and take him along into this situation. Mm -hmm. And then the viewer stands beside and sees what happened there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the whole idea of Reveille. And it is historically very correct. So from ink signature to the use of weapons, mm -hmm. everything is exactly like it was in 1943. Sure. The uniforms are not uniform from the Germans because in 1943 they had soldiers which were coming coming from Africa, from the Africa Corps to Italy. They had soldiers which came from the home front, even from, from the Russian front. They got wounded, came from the Russian front, had their uniforms with them. So you see they are uniforms, <coughs> but they are mixed uniforms. Right. That was actually 1943 Italy. Mm -hmm. And you see that in Rivoli. So it was very, very well and very deep researched. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that is what also got me on board because I'm, I'm a very realistic person. And to motivate me to go into a new adventure adventure yeah it's not that easy you really have to have some good arguments yeah <laughs> and uh <clears throat> so so that's what caught me in this and then we talked about it uh i thought a little bit about it and i said yep i can see that i can help yeah now let's start really talk about how can i help mm -hmm. and that is when we made the first zoom meeting and that is when michael ackerman saw me And then he offered me, uh, after a couple of times, force and back, he offered me a role, a lead role for that movie. Right. Yeah. So I did not join the team in order to be an actor. Yeah. I joined it in order to be an advisor, a German advisor. Because you're very passionate about history. Right. Yeah. Where does the passion for history come from for you? That goes actually back to school. Uh, uh, I liked already history in class. Mm -hmm. uh, was was always one of my favorite things. And from there, it just developed. I joined then the German Border Patrol. was then an elite unit, which bound me always for 14 days in the camp. And then I was 14 days to three weeks at home. Uh -huh. The only requirement to stay fit in shape. Mm-hmm. And that is nice for the first three, four, five times. Yeah, you go bathing, party, and stuff like that. But then it gets old. So I started, I had learned as my first business being a machinist. So I started to repair antique toys, mm -hmm. mechanical toys. And that developed. And uh, uh, from there, I, I was always hooked. And my, my period is really going back to 1850. 
uh, up to the 1950s. 50s. Mm. Yeah. So that both world wars are between, uh, but that is so the, the direction. There is a little bit the, the Franco-Prussian war, which was also a big war. So, so that are things I'm, I'm interested in. And that's where, 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 where that comes from and just stuck. Yeah. Sure. So, and yeah, Michael Ackermann was looking for an older guy, speaks fluent German, uh, has military background, and I just delivered that. Yeah, you yeah. just you just happen so, to be the right guy for that. So, so he offered me the role for <clears> it. <throat> I never stood in the in front of a camera before, but it happened. So then from there we developed together the script. So Mike Burke had done a lot of research how the movement or which army was in Italy in 1943 at that time mm-hmm. when we actually play. Myra Miller started to research military Amer- American military archives found this, the, the cave and stuff like that in it, found names of soldiers. Uh, Michael Ackermann got in touch with some of the families of these soldiers, interviewed them, talked with them, and from there everything developed. And uh, Michael Ackermann created basically the script. Mm-hmm. We influenced it with our knowledge for realistic war behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael, Mike Burke had a lot to do with that. Jörg brought a lot of in. He had actual experience from Sarajevo. He was with the German army, army in Sarajevo. I brought quite a bit in. I saw some combat through my 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 time in service, and we brought that all in, brought it together, and then the script was basically developed, and uh, then it came to the next step. Okay, we have a nice script. We want to do that. We need a cast. Yeah. So <clears throat> then came auditions. Uh, the, the auditions were handled by Michael Ackermann. Um, Mike Burke, York, and me. Okay. And uh, while Michael Ackermann and Mike Burke had more attention to the American soldiers, mm-hmm. York and I paid more attention for the German soldiers. Okay. Which is logical because York and I are both native Germans. Yeah, yes. that makes sense. And uh, my part was then, as a follow-up, basically to train the American actors for proper German. Where did the the call go out for the auditions, I guess? Like, how did you go Uh, about putting the word out to find actors? That was done by Michael Ackermann. Uh Uh, He uh, had a room over in L.A. where uh, uh, where we met, and he basically... Um, had a camera running and zoomed that to us and Jörg and I we were sitting in front of our laptops and we were watching the auditions Okay. Uh, so we had live auditions there which we saw but and Mike, Mike Berg also saw he was not there uh, Holden Weil was also involved in that whole thing he took care of the technical part there and uh, then we also had a couple actors who couldn't come to the auditions, but they sent in audition tapes. I see. Yeah. Okay. And then from there, we picked the cast and uh, we had a damn good hand. So the cast we had was fantastic. Was it difficult at all, picking the cast? Uh, yeah, you, you, it was. Uh, you you want to do it right, but you also have to be willing to do certain compromises. You have mm. an ideal in your head. And um, the, the the actors deliver. They mm-hmm. are good. Yeah? So basically everyone who comes <clears throat> there is good. And then you look for the actor who has this 
little extra, this little special, what makes him unique for, for that role. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to compromise there because his uniqueness is maybe something different than you had looked for, but it fits still perfectly for the role. Yeah? So, yes. And we, we really had luck. So that, that I must say, we got a really, really good cast together. No, yeah, I mean, the, which, the, the cast of the movie, I mean, I, I can't say I've heard of any of them before, even though yeah. I'm, I know some of them were um, professional actors that yeah. had worked in other projects and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I thought for what it was, they all did their parts, carried them very, very well. Yeah. So you saw the movie, so yes. therefore, <laughs> yeah, that helps. Uh, no, we, we really had, had, had uh, luck with, with that. They were great actors, did a fantastic job. And that's one of the reasons why Rivoli really got such a buzz and such a success. Yeah? I mm -hmm. mean, it won, won, won about 50 awards yeah, or several times best war movie, several times best historical feature. Because where all, where all has it been shown? I mean, I saw it at the Cedar Rapids Independent Film yeah. Festival, but I know it's been now showcased at this point elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, It was basically in every capital in Europe. Okay. Yeah, so the big festivals in the capitals, uh, Paris, Brussels, uh, Rome, Berlin, uh, um, uh, quite a few, few, like I said, every mm -hmm. capital over there. And we won mm -hmm. in most of them somehow awards. I would yeah. think it would actually, just from an audience reception standpoint, you would actually probably be, uh, I, would, I don't, I don't want to say nervous is the right word, but like a movie like this, because so much of it is dealing with World War II, which ultimately mm -hmm. was largely a war that affected Europe and that area, when you're screening a movie like that, that audience to me there is going to be much more familiar with certain elements of it yeah. than certain other regions that you would show this movie. So to me... That would actually be pretty high praise if it does well over there, right? Which is, I think, what you want. Uh, we we had the expectation from the beginning on that we said this movie will do good in Europe because mm -hmm. of the way it is shown and the honesty in it. Yeah, right. and um, leaving out these classical cliches which you often have with war movies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was one reason why we also focused with a lot of the, the festivals. We also won in LA uh, uh, some awards, and then here in Iowa we did good at the Iowa Motion Picture uh, uh, at the Cedar Rapid one. Yep. The Iowa Motion Picture Awards we we won. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we are now going out to the Star Festival in Lansing, which is next weekend. Okay, we are nominated there. Uh, if we win, we don't know. We will right. see. Yeah, uh, but that's, we, we made our way through and the interesting part is also we won awards over the credit board. So it's really, we won for best editing. We won for, for, uh, best score. We won best director, best first time director, best actors. Two of the actors out of Reveille won best actor awards, mm -hmm. a total of eight. Yeah. And they are split two actors, four and four. Uh, so, so it's really, it went over the whole board. Yeah. The best costume and, and best mask, be best, um, uh, uh, prosthetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really, uh, uh, that is, I think, what makes Reveille so unique for an independent that it not just had one part, it's really going over the whole credit board. Mm -hmm. And also with the actors, it's not just one actor who wins awards, it's actually two, which tells you how good the team was. Yeah. 
That's also important. You do not win individual or for the movie awards if the team is not good. Your well, team, there's too many elements in a movie to right. make it about any one right. person. Yeah. It's also if your team doesn't work out, you can be the best actor in the world. Yeah. If your team doesn't <clears throat> work out, you won't see it. Yeah. yeah, it just doesn't come. So you don't win awards if the team, if your colleagues beside you, mm. around you as actors, don't play right with you, you will not win an award. Even even if you are the best actor, yeah, you will not win an award if everything else doesn't fit together. The movie sure. has to be good in in its whole, mm -hmm. and uh, your team has to be good in the whole. So, so what yeah. happens at the point when the casting gets locked in? Like, what's the next steps after casting? Okay, then, then uh, you you know, then at that point you are parallel while you are starting casting. You also start to look for finances. Yeah, you can you yeah. have an idea. You start scouting. Yeah, uh, um, like location scouting. Location scouting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you start scouting for that. <clears throat> uh, that's all going hand in hand. Yeah. yeah. And the financing is, of course, always a big problem. You also yeah. do at that point already try to analyze a little bit your target audience. Because that's very important. How big is your target audience? And did, did, the, did everyone have an idea of what that audience was uh, beforehand? Not, not when we started out with it, but then we, we did certain steps through mm -hmm. the internet with certain test posts and stuff to figure out. Of course, we knew that the reenactor scene is a potential target group for us. Yeah, Makes We sense. knew that veterans will be a potential target group for us. Historians who, who are going into that direction would be a potential target group, certain teacher. So we had already an mm. idea where it would go. But then it's important when you do a movie, you have to get an evaluation. What can I actually reach with my movie? Sure. If I have a market which allows me as a sample to bring in $500,000 on revenue, mm -hmm. But my movie is for my cost a million dollars. Right. Then you don't make the movie because okay. you would lose five hundred thousand dollars. Makes yeah? sense. Yeah. So, so that's one <clears throat> of the very important parts is, is directly figure out. And there is certain techniques how you can do it. The internet plays a big role. The social media plays a big role. You yeah. just make a couple of test posts here and there with certain things, and you look how reactions are happened mm -hmm. for five hundred dollars invested in social media you can already become come to a very close estimate of where you can end up on your target audience well, what was the budget for reveille uh the budget when we planned it was hundred and forty thousand dollars okay yeah is that what it still like turned out to be or did no it? no no we we ended up to to i would guess when we figure now everything with advertisement with publisher and all we sure. ended up at about two hundred thousand dollars okay not quite so 190 200 dollars and how do you get some of the early financing done i mean is it just from you know like in-kind donations mm -hmm. distributors i mean I, i'm sure there's a lot of different ways independent films get their funding their funding we had at uh, several ways uh, michael ackerman had started a crowdfunding okay brought some funds in uh not 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 big money but it brought money in which helped already to get started mm -hmm. uh then myra miller uh through third step research got some investors um when jörg and i got involved we decided we jump in too with some of our own funds myra jumped in with some of her own funds mike burks jumped in with some of his funds mm -hmm. 
uh, Mike Larkerman started, jumped in with some of his funds. Jörg and I, we founded and film from Iowa mm -hmm. and also found uh, investors. We have some investors from Europe, but we also have some investors here from Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, so that helped and, and that basically brought the money together that we actually could do the shooting. And for the shootings, uh, uh, up to the <coughs> shooting, including paying for the actors, for load, logic and, and food and all of that, the budget was $145,000. How, how does the pitch look for getting those people? People. I mean, like you, you have like the, I'm sure like an idea of like, you know, where we can kind of pull these funds from, but I'm always curious, like how the actual selling of it goes where you're like, okay, we have this movie. This is what we're wanting to do with it. We think it can do this. I mean, did you guys have like any sort of like, you know, real strategic plan behind that? Or did you just kind of trust our passion for this project is going to carry through when we talk to people about it and, and the rest will kind of follow in suit. Let's say it that way for Rivoli. It was exactly like you said right now. Yeah. It was for Jörg and me the first time that we ever went into such a project. And sure. it was basically our enthusiasm, mm -hmm. which made it possible that people were willing to give money to the project. Right. So now with this knowledge and being two and a half years after, after the start point, this looks different. Mm -hmm. Our next movie we are planning is a different price category than we had with Reveille. Right. And here we actually are working already on pitch, on 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 uh, on, on, on monetizing, on on revenue and revenue plans and stuff like that in order to be able to pitch them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this uh, the next movie we are going, the next feature we are going to do. Uh, will be way differently organized than we did Rivoli. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Rivoli was, was really, okay, we, we talk $145,000, which sounds a lot of money, but for movie making, it's basically nothing. Yeah. 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 Even in the independent world, that's pretty small. Even, even, yeah. And, um, the, the, the important part is, I, I believe that by talking a lot, we got a lot of in-kind donations. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, all the weapons we had, we didn't buy one weapon. Somewhere had them and borrowed us. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's a very important thing, which uh, saves you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We didn't went with the actors into a hotel. We meant it an R&B. Okay. And we created in the RMB basically in the basement a camp situation. One side of the basement was a camp situation on courts for the Americans. The other side was on courts for the Germans. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So that saved a lot of money and made it possible. Yeah. Because if you, we would have gone in a hotel for each person, that would have completely went out of control. Well, and I imagine, too, that just the nature of independent films, you have a lot of people that are not by any means, you know, established. They're, they're not big mm -hmm. time made. So meaning that, you know, you have a lot of people that are hungry. Yeah. They're hungry for success and they don't need some of these amenities and expensive services that other projects eventually, you know, will establish. So, I mean, I, I, and I think it also works for a story like this too, when you want there to be yeah. certainly like a military squad dynamic between these two groups. So that, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
So, and uh, that actually worked out because it also created kind of a group dynamic yeah. which you have in military. There's a group dynamic. It's always, I think, tough with military movies in general with that because yeah. you know a lot of those actors didn't meet before. Yeah. You know, they probably just meet, you know, maybe right. if they even are lucky enough to have a rehearsal yeah. um, to get that dynamic to make it feel like there is history that these people have worked together before. Right. That is, I believe, also one of the reasons why our actors were so fantastic. We started very early because the American so, uh, uh, actors who had to play Germans had to get the German lines uh, uh, taught. Yeah. And I started three months before we started shooting with them actually practicing their lines. So there was, and very early we started to put them in Zoom groups together And really, they, they knew each other already when they came to the set. And okay. I think that's to a lot of, of movies also. Uh, the, the actors don't know each other. You come to the set and now suddenly you should be a homogen established group. Yeah. That is tough to reach. It is possible, but it's tough. Yeah. Here in our case, the American soldiers, they met in LA. The, most of the American soldiers came from LA. Mm -hmm. The German soldiers, they came actually from different areas. Uh, but we met on Zoom and had our trainings and, and talked about and uh, had the, the language, the, the pronunciation and stuff like that. And that turned so good out. We showed Rebelé in Europe to uh, different people. They were not able to tell us which ones are the native-speaking uh, Germans mm -hmm. and which ones are the not-native ones. They were not able to make the difference. Yeah, and that's so, probably the highest kind of praise you yeah, want is so, knowing that they can't figure that out. Right. And the so that was another point of this detail where we really put a lot of focus into it. Mm -hmm. So, but... <clears throat> This is just developed from there and, and got into the scruple. But back to, to how do you plan the, the finances, the budget and yeah. stuff like that. So that is, is so a step devel, uh, develops. Yeah. When you have your script, you know what kind of actors you need. So you have mm -hmm. a, the first idea. And when you know how many actors you actually have, you know what you need for, for lodging and for food, for travel cost. Yeah. Uh, You can can estimate that. So you make a rough budget, mm -hmm. and in that budget you have for the different categories. Uh, yeah, you, we we planned with ten days shooting, which is for a feature mm -hmm. very tight. Mm -hmm. And people who see Reveille, they do not believe us that we were able to shoot that movie in ten days, but we did. Yeah. And the trick for that was a very very good preparation ahead of it. Yeah, because I can't imagine, I mean, 10 days is extremely quick. Yeah. I mean, let alone for a time, you know, excuse me, a period piece film uh, that has to deal with war and you, you have action. And, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this eventually. Um, I know we talked about the, the use of live rounds in, in this picture. Um, but, you know, doing that quickly, too, you could, you know, you could say, like, oh, like we're under a tight shooting schedule. So some things will get cut corners and things like that to make our, you know, to make our shoots okay. But... Um, yeah, 10 days is quick. Yeah. Very, very quick. So, and it worked because it was very, very well organized. So that yeah, is, you had uh, that time leading yeah. up to it beforehand. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, was one of the things with the knowledge from today. I would plan that with 12 days. I would give it two more days. What would the two more days allow if you, uh, if, if you had it? We would a, have, have a little bit more time for a couple extra inlays, uh, shootings, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> maybe here and there another detail shot, 
additional just to give the editor even more options yeah. than we were able to offer him. Because yeah? when you're shooting under the 10 days, I mean, I, I suppose the director would know this, but like, were there many takes for the scenes or because you had enough time and prep, like you could, you know, relatively get them in one or two takes or... I, I don't know every take because I was not in every scene involved. Right. Yeah? I was from the 10 day shooting, I was nine days in front of the camera, but then also not always the whole day. Some right, was not right. involved. The most scene where I was involved, uh, got reshot was four times. Okay. Which is a very small amount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When, uh, I, I know from the Matrix, there, there was with Keanu Reeves, there was a scene where he just walks through a door and he shot that scene 75 times. Oh, God. So just to, to give you an idea. Yeah? yeah. So, and the most I remember uh, from when I was there was, I think, four times. That yeah, was that, the that's most. not that bad. That is really not bad. And uh, there were scenes where we really went after one or two shots mm -hmm. and uh, they said, we got it. It's there. But yeah. that is, again, this preparation. Mm -hmm. We had hardly... I cannot even recall that we ever had to reshoot because an actor didn't know his line or had forgotten his line. Yeah. They had him. It was just there. Yeah. I remember they did a shoot in one through, uh, in the cave later on, a very long scene. Yeah. And they did it in one through without interruption. Then mm -hmm. they did the same scene from a different angle again. We had two camera guys uh, shooting, so we had four different shootings of that scene. That was all they needed in order to be right for the movie. Right. Yeah, and uh, so that was was where I said this preparation ahead. The the quite often the table readings we did already ahead on Zoom with mm -hmm. with, with uh, the actors from the different areas. I believe that it was a key to make it possible that we were able to actually shoot Rivoli in 10 days. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I got to ask you, um, I, I definitely want to talk about this live round thing that you talked about. Um, yeah. you, you had, you had shown me an article, um, before we had actually hit recording talking about how, um, you know, Reveille, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, controversial, like it's like a controversial picture. I wouldn't say that, but certainly this element of it you're saying is getting some attention, um, certainly in part because of what happened on the production of the Alec Baldwin picture rust. Um, but could you talk about that a little bit, the decision to, to use live rounds and, and just what went into, to making that happen. And of course the safety of it too. Yeah. When we, when we talked and planned Reveille, that was before rust. Yeah. And we had already decided before Rust that we want to, in order to make it historical accurate and to show the right effect of real weapons used with real ammunition, the recoil. Do you the know if, smoke. do you know if a lot of films, like other films would do that? Is that an industry standard in, in uh, independent no, it's, films? It's more the opposite. I, like using I, blanks I, or I dummy cannot, rounds? Uh, usually they use blanks, right. I would say, or they have, have special weapons which are just not sharp or, or cannot shoot sharp. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, and I don't have the experience that I could tell. I know other movies where they actually used real mm -hmm. ammunition. I don't know. I'm, sure. I don't have the experience, but I know, uh, when we planned the movie, when we talked about it, when we talked with Mike Burke, who then also was the armorer for the movie, 
that the decision was made from us, uh, Michael Ackermann, Mike Burke leading, and mm -hmm. Jörg, Myra, and, and I, we agreed to it, uh, knowing that Mike Burke was really somebody who takes weapon very seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's not toying around with that stuff. Uh, so we had agreed that we wanted to use uh, uh, real weapons with real ammunition. And we went even so far that we organized to have ammunition which was produced 1940. So actually from that period when right. our movie plays. Uh, because a bullet from that time sounds different than if you have a, a bullet which is produced in uh, uh, today. Yeah. Right. So that far we went. And then just a couple weeks before we actually uh, went, it was everything organized. We had the weapons, we had the ammunition, everything was there. Mm -hmm. And then rust happened. Right. And that was, of course, a difficult situation because the first thing, my, my first thing for which idiot did that? How, how can that even happen? Yeah. How stupid has, to, has, has, From everyone involved there, how stupid. Mm -hmm. How can you pull a trigger without having checked the gun? Yeah. That's just one thing I had directly in my mind. Mm -hmm. But still, this now this thing came up, and that was difficult for us because we had to deal with it. Right. So when we talked with our actors, and um, Mike Burke talked with them more than I did, uh, and he put a lot of effort in building up the trust and the security for the weapon. So every actor, before he actually got the weapon, got the weapon explained. He got mm -hmm. showed how to check the weapon, what you do in order to make sure there is nothing in it, and, and, and. And so we stuck with it. We, did, we had made the decision before Rust happened, then Rust happened. Mm-hmm. It was a problem. We had to talk with the actors. We had to build up the trust for the actors that we know what we are doing. Mike Burke knows what he's doing. Michael Ackerman knows what he's doing when right. it comes to weapons. Um, luckily, we had quite a few experienced veterans uh, on set. Jörg is a veteran. I'm a veteran. Joe Bongonjovi is a veteran. Mike Burke is a veteran. Uh, yeah, so we had quite a few of veterans. Uh, uh, Kevin Sinek uh, is, is a veteran from the Austrian Army. Um, so, so we had quite a few who had actually weapon experience. Okay. Yeah. So that helped. Uh, and our young actors, they were, were really good in listening and handling it, which did not have any military experience or so. Mm -hmm. And we have a couple of actors. The youngest one was 15, was Yoni. Um, and uh, uh, he had no experience with it. But uh, they were very, very willing, very listening and very careful. Yeah. And we, we shot the movie. We, we got fantastic scenes. When you see it in the movie, it's really believable what you see there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh, there was not one second where could have been even any danger occurred. Mm -hmm. Mike Burke took care. After the shooting was done and the cut came, yeah. the actors were not allowed to move. They had to just stay. So like late. as soon as they're done firing the weapons and the, like cut the cut and then they just froze okay they did no, not do anything right and mike burke and 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 his his guys who helped him with with the wardrobe and all um brian and and uh, sam they went to each actor 
made sure that the weapon is secured, mm-hmm. that the, 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 that there is no bullets in it anymore, took the weapon from the actor, mm-hmm. secured and made. And every time it went through three hands from the actor, Sam, Brian, Mike. Mm-hmm. Three hands. So every time. It was also the actors had the opportunity to go with Mike Burke on a shooting range. Okay, good. We gave mm-hmm. half a day for the actors to get familiar with the weapons and they had fun doing it. They mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Yeah? And they shot weapons they usually never get in their hands. Yeah? So some of the 1943 weapons which were there, Americans <laughs> as well as Germans, you just don't get a hold of today. Mm-hmm. And they were, were, were allowed on the shooting range to shoot these weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So they had fun doing it. And of course, that all built a very good atmosphere, also very secure and very trustful atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there was a very high... Everyone had at any time the right to call stop if he felt felt insecure. Okay. There was one of our rules. If you feel something is not right, you feel insecure, just call stop and everything, everyone freezes. I think yeah. it's important that you actually are taking the time to flesh out the actual safety precautions. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, like at least just from conversations I've had with people about, you know, weapons and movies and things like that, you, you hear about that there's an armor and stuff, but you know, you yeah. just assume that they're the person that procures the weapon and just makes sure that, you know, there's no rounds in it. But, you know, talking about the importance of making sure the actors are not moving after they've discharged rounds and and making sure that they feel safe, that they can, you know, stop something at their control if they do, Uh, the firearms training and whatnot. I I think all of that's very important for people to understand because I, I don't know how many people would know about this stuff unless they're actually going around handling weapons. Mike Burke had set very strict and straightforward protocols. Yeah. And he knew exactly how many bullets were given out, mm-hmm. how many bullets were shot, and how many bullets had to come back. I'm going to change this out really quick, and then we'll, we'll resume, okay? just going through the the safety precautions that the armor was making and whatnot and and this is just for myself like i i am by no means a gun person i'm I'm really not i i like seeing them in movies i mean who doesn't they're exciting you know it it pumps your adrenaline up uh, especially for a war picture it's pretty difficult Mm -hmm. to have one and not have weapons be used in them right but that being said, even though I myself am not a person that really feels very comfortable handling weapons and whatnot, um, I think there's a lot of education that still needs to be had about the use of weapons and using them safely, ethically, and and making sure that it's being used truthfully in the context of a movie. Because um, weapons, to me, are something that you absolutely should show respect and you should be afraid of them because mm-hmm. of what they are capable of doing to a person. The the point is, I see this a little bit different. I I know what I'm saying now will be very controversial. Okay. Because I say there is absolutely no reason why you could not use real weapons with hot ammunition. There is no reason. If you follow the rules, the protocols then you are completely on the safe side. Right. 
The problem comes when people start to cut corners, and that is what happened at Rust. Mm -hmm. How now exactly legally or so, I don't know. That is also not my thing to judge. Right. That is the courts and, and whoever now in the aftermath has to deal with that mess which happened there. Mm -hmm. For Rivelet, we made sure that Mike Burke had the absolute authority. He set the rules. He was the one who had the control. Mm -hmm. And it was done how he gave it. So, And there was no other one except the both guys he had selected and had trained who helped him. No other one was involved in doing the anything. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how that has to be. There has to be clear responsibilities. There has to be clear protocols in place. And if you follow that lines and they are done right, then there is no danger. Right. Yeah, and uh, that is, I believe, where, where, where the problem is. The problem is not in using real weapons and hot ammunition. The problem is when people start to cut corners. What, are, what would be some corners that people would cut? As a sample, it's always about money. When it comes to movie, it's always about money and time. Sure. If you don't give the time that the actor gets familiar with the weapon he has to handle. Mm -hmm. The first thing, before an actor even gets the weapon in his hand... He needs to get it explained. You need to take the time to explain the weapon to him mm -hmm. to make sure that the actor by himself is able to verify that this weapon is cold, means no bullet in it, yeah. or hot, bullet in it, mm -hmm. that he is able for himself to verify that. Mm -hmm. So that, there it starts. You need to give the time that the actor gets familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like I said, our actors had the opportunity to go with Mike to a shooting ranch and shoot there <clears throat> yeah, for half a day. And that did a lot of good. In the evening before we started to work actual with uh, sharp, uh, sharp ammunition, uh, hot ammunition and, and real weapons, every actor got his weapon from Mike, explained, showed, handled, mm -hmm. and they practiced. Right without an ammunition, but they practice. How do I check it? How I do, where do I look? What do I have to do in order to be able to check? Sure. Yeah. And that were, were the steps which, which you just have to follow up. And then there was a very clear thing on the set. The weapons were given always empty. And then Mike Burke was the one who loaded them. The actor knew now it's hot. Now it's ready to go. I have to go in that direction. The weapon was already directed in the direction it has to go when the actor got it handed. Uh -huh. Yeah, all of these things. And the, uh, the cameraman was was one of these really big samples for me. Uh, Cooper Shine, great guy. Uh, he was amazed. Mike Burke sent him out of a certain area. And he said, when we shoot with blanks, I'm always in this area. And Mike Burke said, nah, that is not safe. I want you 10 foot more out of the picture. Okay. And you shoot from there. That's how we do this. Mm -hmm. I want you away from here. And then Cooper said, when we shoot even with blanks, yeah. And Mike Burke said, even with blanks, you have stuff coming out of the front. I think it's good that you say that because yeah. some people I don't think know about that. Right. They assume a blank round or a, a dummy round is just, you know, it just makes the the recoil, you know, it just makes that fire effect come out yeah. the gun. But it's like, no, like things still will project out of those. You can kill somebody right. with, with one can, of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is just, just the pressure which comes out. But at the end of the sentence, you still 
get the spark and you still get black powder yeah. exploding and that just pushes out and there's, there's particles in the black powder that just come out even with mm. blanks um, so therefore even there you have to have the security yeah and and therefore I, I really say if you follow the rules if you put security and give the time for security on the first priority mm -hmm. there's no reason why you cannot use them on a movie set is it difficult from like ensuring a film or like during the production of it using the live rounds like because because i imagine just like any film coming together you know there's permits that you have to get and things like that does using the live rounds make that a factor or make it more difficult uh, to achieve i actually cannot answer that question because the whole insurance package was handled by myra Okay. And I do not exactly know how that went up or what was included in the policies or that's not. Fair. Or so I just don't know it. No, yeah. that's okay. So. It's just a curious thing because, you know, again, I just imagine, that especially after this rust, this rust situation, I'm sure there's plenty of studios and, and financiers and people that are making films that if they know that there's going to be a weapons element to it, like surely it has to be a factor in the actual making and, and funding of a movie too. Yeah. But like I said, also, if you just shoot with blanks, you still have the problem yeah. that, that there is an accident potential if you cut corners. I think yeah. regardless of the type of film, if it was period or not period, if you're using weapons, there has to be the strictest of protocols yeah. and regulations followed, and there right. cannot be any exception. And for that matter, too, and for all I know, there, there could be information about this that I'm not aware of. I have to imagine that amongst these very experienced studios that are using weapons all the time in their pictures, there probably needs to be harsh punishments or uh, penalties or fines or something that are levied against people that do cut these corners and do these things, because otherwise, what's going to stop a person from doing it, right? Let's, let's put two things uh, I think right now very important to mention. Yeah. The security protocol is for hot weapons basically exactly the same mm -hmm. as for prop weapons mm -hmm. because no matter what you always have to check your weapon for possible danger right that's just it so the security protocol is always the same mm -hmm. there is no difference in it if you shoot like we did with hot ammunition or if you shoot with blanks or if you have dummy doesn't matter Right. The protocol has to be the same. The punishment, I believe, comes to carry at the moment when you actually get unions involved. Okay, yeah. Independent, there is always a little bit this point. A lot of independent movies are made without really any control function behind it. Uh-huh. That changes at the moment you get unions involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Rivoli was done without unions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an independent, uh, non-union production. Sure. Yeah, but uh, if you have unions involved, you have the actors have the possibility to call a union representative when, if they feel something is not right on set. Yeah, that's one thing I was wondering with with Rust. 
Because they had the opportunity and it had happened. It had given cause. I do remember there being yeah. some... some. I, I don't know if it was strictly to the to the weapons, though. I'm, I'm sure it was. But I remember there were other calls, I believe, to the union about just um, unprofessional practices, right. um, dangerous conditions, yeah. overworking yeah. people, just, so, you know, things like that. So and I'm, I'm wondering, and that's just speculation here, yeah? So I'm not putting here anything out sure. because I don't have the knowledge of about it but i'm actually wondering if here the people from the union because mm -hmm. it was out in a desert yeah right if they actually took it serious i don't know yeah, yeah so yeah. so hard to know uh, unless you're actually there yeah so uh it's hard to know but uh, i believe i believe that at rust a lot of things went wrong that was yeah. not just one thing i think a lot of things came there together yeah and uh <clears throat> including drinking on set oh really Yeah, so at least what I heard, mm -hmm. um, there was alcohol on set, mm -hmm. um, which is put in this, what they call method acting. Okay. Which is, in my opinion, a wrong interpretation of method acting, because method acting is a preparation part. It's an... an, an, an a part of movement how would you move mm -hmm. in your character prepare into that and then it's a mental part sure and alcohol on a set i don't know yeah i just say that straightforward i don't know yeah mm -hmm. and in my opinion you do not need alcohol in order to be a method actor, mm -hmm. even if you have to play a drunk character. Right. Because as a method actor, you can get mentally in the stage that you are drunk mentally. Yeah. And I give you a very simple example for that. In my role, I had to play somebody who gets weaker, weaker, and is dying. Yes. But I was not dying. You haven't been shot before? <laughs> I never have been shot before. Okay. And still... I was able to perform it. Right. Believable. Yeah. So that's the same with a drunk. You can perform it believable yeah. if you get mental mental into that stage. Yeah. There is a trick. Alcohol has nothing to do on the set. That's one of my rules. On a set where I'm involved, you will not have alcohol involved. Sure. It was, uh, by the way, part of the contract from, from with our actors. Okay that they were not allowed to have any alcohol, drugs, or anything like that on set. Interesting. Yeah, it was part of our contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it gave two occasions where we, as the leaders for that whole thing, decided in the evening, shooting was done, where a controlled amount of beer came in. Mm-hmm. And that was given out controlled. So there was no drunk or stuff like that going on. It was an enjoyable being together. Yeah. There was one time in the middle, and that was at the end after we had wrapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And after we had wrapped, there was a little bit more coming in. Right. Yeah. But then it was done, and everyone could just relax and start to get out of character and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But. All the other days, there was no alcohol involved and it was not allowed. 
I, I think the subject, no matter which way you slice it, I mean, it, when you're working with weapons on a set, regardless of the context or how they're being used, it's a weapon. Mm-hmm. They are dangerous things. That is just a fact, plain mm-hmm. and simple. And I do think you can't play loosey-goosey with some of that stuff. You have to take it deadly seriously because yeah. of what can con- what, you know what can come with it, which, of course, is death. Um, and it's nice to hear that from an, in, an independent production, too, especially that you mentioned um, it not having union backing and things like that, too, because I, I think it's important that people know that even in the type of setting that you're making this movie, um, the strictest protocols are put into place for it for the safety and well-being yeah. of the actors and everyone around. Right. Yeah, it's very important. It is, yeah. So the biggest damage we actually had was that we hit a branch, a tree branch, oh. and split it apart. Yeah. <laughs> so in the distance, that was the biggest accident we actually had. Yeah. I think in the grand scheme of things, the other trees might be upset that that one tree got hurt, but it'll yeah. it'll live. <laughs> it'll be just <laughs> fine. Yeah. So now uh, I, I think we, we talked very clear about it. And like I said, in my opinion... Uh, If you follow the rules, if you follow protocol and you do not cut corners, then there is no reason why you cannot use weapons and hot ammunition. I think it's especially um, the last last thing I'll say about this rust thing and, and, you know, we can continue. But it's, you know, when you even first mentioned, like when you heard about it, your reaction was like, you know, what what morons are, you know, Mm -hmm. this is just this doesn't make sense. This defies logic. I think that reaction is appropriate because movies have been getting made for a long time. And there have been plenty of movies that have experienced or even inexperienced people that know these basics. So I think it's, I think it's perfectly fine to feel that, that knee jerk reaction of feeling like that. because you're right. It it shouldn't be the case. It just shouldn't have happened. Right. Um, Yeah. No, I just think if anybody's going to take a lesson from this, do not cut corners ever with this stuff. Um, weapons can kill you, plain and simple. That's, there's other things that can kill you too. If you go in a machine factory, yeah, there is big heavy machinery running. If you don't handle it right, it can kill you. Right. Yeah. Again, protocol follows the rules. That's why you have OSHA. And know what you are doing. Yeah. That's the important part. Driving car, truck. Uh, any kind uh, backhoe that are all tools which can be deadly yeah yeah and uh, if you follow the rules and all then accidents can happen Mm -hmm. but that is an accident that for some reason the bullet is mismanufactured and explodes in a barrel that can happen right Uh, it's rarely happened but it can happen that's Mm -hmm. what you call an accident but that also is not necessarily a deadly force in because it's contained within the barrel and it gives just a very heavy uh, recoil and stuff like that. So, so the, you have to see there is, is a risk yeah, with a car. Yeah, of course, a, a, a tire can blow. Right. Yeah, and then is the question if the reaction of the driver is correct and nothing happened or if he overreacts and suddenly boom and he is in the ditch. Yeah, so things can happen, but that's what what's the difference is. We are talking about accidents. When we talk about rust, this was not an accident. That was stupidism. Yeah, that simple it is. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly think going forward, any production is sadly going to use that film as a lesson. 
I mean, I don't know how else to look at it in that just use it as a teaching moment and try to yeah. move on. Yeah. I mean, that that's all you can do. Um, I, I will say, though, and I don't know if this is controversial, um, but I am glad that they're finishing the production. As, as strange as that may sound, just because I feel like a lot of people really put a lot of time and work into a production. And yes, it's, of course, horrible what happened on that. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that really care about this sort of thing. And I don't know at what stage into that production they were. But if they got enough of it in the can, I you know movies are so hard to get made anyway i wouldn't want it to to not get finished i mean i, I would still want it to honor the work of who lost the, the person that lost their life uh, the people that were injured um i don't know what you think about that but the husband of halina hutchinson yeah is involved now in the production of it yeah And I believe, I don't know, I never talked with him, uh, but I believe he's doing that in order to honor her. Yeah. And it will be for sure a movie which will be always with her name connected. Yeah. With her legacy mm -hmm. about it. And I think that's that's a consideration we, we have to see there. So therefore, I think it's right that this movie is finished. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to Reveille on here, um, you know, we, we talked about when we first met about uh, just overall shooting on the movie. Uh, I know you had talked about what it was like to be playing near death and then eventually dead. That, that was certainly interesting. Um, but when you do get into the post-production on a movie like this, I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of explain how long of a process that would take. Because, you know, on an independent film as well, you have you know, limited assets to say the least. You don't have as many people that can work on the editing and the, the PR side mm -hmm. of things, if you will. Um, could you talk about that and how that all happened after the picture was wrapped up? Lovely. Uh, so we got the picture wrapped and it was about a two to three week break. And then the editor started to work with Mike Lackermann on the process. Nathan Frankhoff, great guy. Uh, did a fantastic job, won awards for it, which I, I really liked uh, mm -hmm. uh, for his editing job. Um, he, in, in record time, he put the movie within three and a half months, he put the movie together. Do you know how much footage was shot initially, or like, was there any foot, like footage that got lost in the edit? Uh, as far as I... Let's say it that way. I know it's a lot of footage, uh -huh. 10 days, 12, day, uh, uh, 12 hour shooting days mm -hmm. yeah uh, 120 hours two cameras uh, plus sometimes a third one uh, so there was a lot of material yeah. yeah and what he did is he basically created first a rough cut that was about three hours long and then he digested from there together mm -hmm. made sure that the sequences worked out and all and we ended up with one hour 49 i think mm -hmm. yeah, or one hour 39 some, somewhere in that direction i don't even know exactly yeah and uh, i think it really turned nice out yeah mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, but I think three and a half months he was in the editing room. But that's also one thing professionals from from Hollywood will not believe that, because they have whole crews on it on on movies and on features, and they don't get it done in three and a half months. Yeah, yeah. So that's where they're just independent. Sometimes, if you have the guys who really have the possibility, he was able to really put the time in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, work every day on it. 
Yeah, with independent, you do not have that always. There's people, they have another job where they make their life is, yeah. and then they can spend a couple hours every day. That, of course, changes that time, time frame completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from the day where we decided to make Reveille to the day where it will be actually now released to the public on August 4th uh, on Amazon, uh, it's two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and uh, you can really say that Reveille from the timeline here was done in an optimized way, optimal way. Mm -hmm. So for every independent produ uh, producer who has not full-time access in working on it, you have to extend this timeline already. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, editing, it's something we talked about uh, before we had hit recording on this as well. It's just, I, I could talk about that alone for a long time mm -hmm. because it's such a tedious process yeah. and it's so meticulous. And, and one of the things I always think about too is in post-production on really any movie, I think got it has to be one of the biggest challenges of the editor is that you're just seeing the footage so often yeah. and eventually I mean you have to get to that point where you know you're almost not even looking at it from an audience perspective it's just I've seen this footage now for months mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to still keep it fresh and have the pacing flow with everything else um, it's, just, it's just hats off to editors on movies I mean yeah. like it, it's an incredible challenge and you know the ones that do it well um, they make it look effortless, but it's anything but. Reveille also is very special because there are several things coming together. Uh, of, you have the footage, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Then you have color correction, that's yep. another step. Goes through the whole movie again. Mm -hmm. Then you have <clears throat> the soundtracks go also through the whole movie. That's your third time. And soundtracks, you often have several soundtracks combined right so and then you have with Reveille also the subtitles mm -hmm. which were important because Reveille is multilingual yeah? yep. three languages spoken in Reveille it's English it's German and it's Polish okay yeah, yeah. so you, you have to have the subtitles there is no way out yeah, yeah? and um, so so and and all of that is goes back to the editor of course, he has help. So the color correction, Cooper Shine, our cinematographer, was involved with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it came to subtitles, the English part, Mike Burke involved himself with the English part. And Mike Burke and I involved ourselves with the editor for the German part. Mm -hmm. And then the Polish part was the Polish guys who involved themselves with the editor. Yeah. But the editor has, is in everything involved. Right. Yeah. And, it's five, six, seven times the movie through meticulous, and it has to fit all together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, when 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 you have sound a soundtrack, when you have speech, that mm -hmm. has to fit with uh, the movement and 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 and. Yeah, so he did a great job. Yeah. yeah. So no questions asked about that. How many people are doing, I guess, PR for the movie? I mean, I know you're happy to talk about it, but I mean, like, is the director, you know, talking with people? Is any of the cast, uh, you know, talking with anybody? I'm, I'm just curious about that. Uh, I assume that <clears throat> now, now where, where we are coming more into the stage that really actually gets published, that more of the cast will be involved. Yeah. Up to here, assets like, like pictures and, and certain text and, and, uh, uh, lock lines and stuff like that were delivered by Michael Ackermann and Myra 
uh, uh, Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, they delivered that. Uh, we do have a publicist uh, working on it who brings the movie out. Buffalo 8 does some through their <coughs> network, some, some, some stuff. But the really intense, where now actors get involved, will come with interviews uh, when, when the movie is released, mm -hmm. that they show up. Uh, you had a little bit of interaction at the festivals. You have seen that there. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, so there um, we had a couple here and there. But I believe the real part where now uh, the actors have to go And, and get interviewed where, where, uh, the producers get interviewed and stuff. I think that's right now starting to begin. How important is public relations, you think, to, to Reveille? I mean, like, how absolute, important? Absolute, absolute. If you yeah. don't have, uh, let's say it that way. If we have produced Reveille, we mm -hmm. find, um, um, distributor and he actually puts it on streams platforms. Right. Sure. So now it sits there, but nobody knows it's there. Mm -hmm. That means nothing happened. <clears throat> yeah. By luck, maybe here and there somebody finds it, mm -hmm. but you don't get, uh, get nothing out of it. Public relation is one of the most important parts and is often forgotten in independent movie making. Mm -hmm. uh, that is when you hear for a production we had planned 145, we are ending up with about 190 to 200,000 on total cost. That is mostly all going into PR. Right. The difference you hear there. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely important. The festivals is PR. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we spent about $5,000 and that's a guess. Yeah. It could be $4,000, sure. could be $6,000. Uh, I'm not in the finance department, so I don't know the right. exact numbers. Uh, but we spent about $5,000 on, on, on festivals. Mm -hmm. Very important because that created the bus. That helped us with our distributor because yeah. if you already have a bus, the distributor is way more willing to work with you yeah. than if you don't have any bus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, then of course our publisher, uh, publicist costs some money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, then if you do in social media something, that costs some money. Yeah. Depending on, like, if you're going to spend money on, like, advertisements and things like that. But yeah. you will have to, in order to, <clears throat> to reach uh, your target groups and, and to make them aware of something happening yeah. now. Yeah. So public relation is very, very important. If you don't plan, uh, there is big productions, really, Mm -hmm. Big, big productions. They plan 50% of their budget for public relations. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It's wild how much it so can cost. We, we end up, I believe, <clears throat> with about 25%, mm -hmm. maybe 30% of our production volume on yeah. money goes into PR. And I think that's important. If you don't have that money, mm -hmm. don't even make your money, uh, make your movie except You want it just as a keepsake and yeah. you are willing to not make any money back or stuff like that on it. I think public yeah. relations, like when, when I think about it in the context of film, because there's, there's certain people when they think about it, they're like, oh, that's just like that. That's the commercial for the movie. That's mm -hmm. selling the movie. Yeah. Even certain actors. I mean, there's been stories out there of like actors that hate public relations. They yeah. can't stand sitting for an interview. They're just like, oh, God, I have to answer the same question 20,000 times, times, which is yeah. fair. I mean, yeah. I get that. It, It, a lot of it comes down to the person that is doing the interview, how much work they've put into it, what yeah. their intention is. I could go on, but I always encourage people to, to watch these 
promotional materials for a movie or to, or to at the very least pay attention to it. Because when I look at it, I don't think of it so much as like, oh, they're just selling the movie. It gets me more interested in the world of movies. I learn about the actor's point of view on things. I learn about those behind the scenes uh, moments that happen. Uh, they're tremendous learning opportunities as well. So I think at the very least, people that have an interest in working in film professionally, pay attention to that stuff. Watch those videos, share them with people, share the articles if it's a written thing. You can do that because there's just a tremendous learning opportunity out there for them. And I would argue for the general audience member, if they pay attention to the PR and they see it, that makes them appreciate the movie more when they actually watch it. Because then they see that, you know, this isn't just a movie. These are real people that worked on this and they poured their blood, sweat and tears into this yeah. thing. And it makes them want to share it that much more with people, which is ultimately what you want with your movie. You want it to connect. You want it to resonate with an audience. And, and yes, PR is absolutely critical for that. I, I believe the PR is also important to let on when now interviews come and, The interviewer has seen Rivile and he yeah. gets to a certain situation and he asks the actor, why did you do that? Yeah. Was it in the script or was that something you developed for your role? Mm -hmm. Because that's also one thing. There are movies which are, are shot completely by the script, like a Bible. Yeah. Reveille was handled a little bit different. Michael Ackerman gave us on set a lot of freedom mm -hmm. where the actors could develop their role and bring it in. When we shot the trailer for Reveille, which we shot here in Iowa Falls, mm -hmm. uh, I did something what was not in the script. Uh, I will not go into detail because that would spoil the whole thing, but I did something that was not in the script. Mm. But he liked it so well that he never corrected this. And then I did the same thing later on mm -hmm. in the movie. And it gives a, a really chilling effect when you see it now in the complete movie. Okay. In the trailer, it is there and you recognize it. But when you see it in the combination now in the movie, mm. suddenly now it really pops. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Michael Ackerman gave all of us actors yeah. this freedom and that also made it possible that with this freedom you can go in, mm -hmm. you can really develop the role and then go from there and, and perform it. And with this freedom in it and the trust you get there, mm -hmm. you can really make it personal. And that is, I believe, one of the strengths Rivelet has said this actors had this freedom, the actors used it positively mm -hmm. and that is what makes Rivelle so believable yeah and I believe that's also one of the things which makes the difference between good movies and bad movies if you don't believe what you see on the screen mm -hmm. you look at a bad movie I know you mentioned the the trailer for the movie which I did happen to watch it before I actually had seen the movie at the festival yeah. um One, thank God it did not reveal the entire picture. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of uh, marketing companies and people that cut trailers together can learn from is we don't want to have the movie spoon fed to us in the trailer. Right. We want to get a taste of the essence of what the movie is going for, the, the vibe, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, you want the person to go into the movie knowing just enough to pique their interest, but not enough that they're not going to 
you know, enjoy the surprises as they happen or enjoy the, the changes in the, the narrative as they play out kind of in the picture. Um, I just, I have a pet peeve for that in trailers. Bad trailers can really ruin a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, you know, there's ones too where, like I said, if they, if they show a lot, a person's going to just be, you know, they'll go into the movie and just be like, oh, that's the moment from the trailer. That's the moment of the trailer. And then they just, they basically watch the whole movie. There's no reason to watch it then. Mm-hmm. I actually think a movie like Reveille, I mean, you, you could go into it with just seeing the poster, if you will. And just being like, oh, okay, that's a that's a neat looking poster because it is. I think it's a neat poster. I don't know who did the artwork for it, mm-hmm. but it's nice. And you could watch the movie, and you don't need a whole lot more than that to watch a movie like this. But the trailer was nice. I did like that. There, there is a reason why trailer often also are called teaser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or teaser trailer. Uh-huh. Yeah. They are just there to 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 tease. Yeah. I want to know more about that movie. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we shot the trailer here in Iowa Falls, but not one scene out of the trailer itself got cut out of the trailer and be reused in the movie. Mm, yeah. The movie is a complete independent production. Elements out of the trailer you find back in the movie. Right. <clears throat> but the scene itself you do not find back because we did not take them from the trailer. They are not in the movie. It's a complete, it's like the trailer or the teaser here in this case is an independent little piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. And then we have the movie as a second big piece of artwork. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's also one of the important parts. Uh, trailer and uh, teaser is what we talk for Reveille, trailer is an often what is used and that is what we have when you look now the trailer we have mm-hmm. for Reveille. That are actually sequences out of the movie, but very selected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we shot here in Iowa Falls is a teaser. That is a complete independent part. Then we have the trailer. That is what you see now when you look uh, on IMDb the mm-hmm. trailers there that are actually scenes out of the movie right but they are very selected and they do not tell you what's actually going on mm-hmm. and that's what how that has to be that's the important part and uh i think michael ackerman and and nathan did a great job in putting that together mm-hmm. uh so that was I, I believe that is one of the things which worked very very well with Reveille. do you watch trailers a lot just for movies coming out in uh, general yeah, yourself i do i actually do yeah mm-hmm. and uh, there is, is trailers I really like, and then there's trailers where I say, "Oh my gosh, now I don't have to watch the movie anymore." <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, trailer is an art form by itself. Yeah? It definitely is. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so you're what two and a half years distance from the the movie actually being shot, right? You said it was around. No, uh, the shot was was in March last year. Oh, okay. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. but so. you're 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 some time away from the actual shooting of it. You're now getting ready for the the wide release of the picture. Which yeah. when is that again? It's August. August fourth. August fourth. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, given the time that you have spent on the movie and just being in this stage of it, you would probably have some tangible advice that you could share with other people that are going to be maybe at the early starting point of their production. Uh, or things like that, but are there any lessons or advice that you could impart to other filmmakers that are maybe making a similar picture to this that you would tell them to do? Yeah, from the beginning on, plan with with a good amount of money for PR. That's one of the things. 
preparation is everything. Make sure you have plenty of time for your shooting. I know every day costs money. Yeah. But like I said, for Revelier, I wished we would have had two more days for a couple more inlays and a couple more different angles and stuff like that. I wished, but on the other hand, it worked out. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it's okay. Um, coverage is everything. Yeah, and uh, that's very important. If you don't have the coverage, you run into holes, and if you run into holes, then your movie will be bumpy. You mm -hmm. need to have flowing storyline, yeah. Uh, a, a flowing story. When you watch on the screen, there can no, no bumps in, in it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Your contingency has to fit. Um, preparation is, in my opinion, the biggest deal. Uh, make good storyboards. Yeah, very important. Uh, the storyboards help your editor. If mm -hmm. the director is by himself the editor, you can be a little bit less storyboard oriented mm -hmm. because you know what you are doing. But if you have an editor who is not on the set with you mm -hmm. and all storyboards will have a lot because it gives him an orientation. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the things I would say. Um, yeah, crew, you need to trust the people. So look what do they have done. Mm -hmm. uh, we had with our crew fantastic luck. Yeah, our cinematographer, top notch. Uh, he brought uh, our second camera guy along, no, uh, uh, Noble and top notch. Our sound guy here from, uh, he's now in Cedar Rapids at that point. He was in Waterloo. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Sorn, uh, top notch. What he made from, from this very difficult situation in the cave where we had a permanent dripping. <laughs> yeah. And he was yeah. able to get that filtered out or so put in the background that you recognize it's there, but it is not influencing the, mm -hmm. the, the communications and what happened. You mm -hmm. can hear a little fire going and stuff like that. And he made that happen to top notch. Um, editing, very important that you have somebody who knows what he's doing there. We had this Nathan there, really luck, uh, top notch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that are things where you really need to look. And that is where, where your network has to, to come together. You have yeah. to find the right guys, build your network, also be, be very, very important is to know your strengths, to know your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Focus on your strengths for your project. Bring your strengths ahead. Where your weaknesses are, find people who cover them. Your weakness is their strengths. Right. And find them and build them into your team. Because I definitely yeah. think creatives, I mean, creatives especially, they don't operate in a way that somebody that is very logistical oriented or project manager oriented yeah. is going to be thinking. Um, I definitely think you have to marry the two together. And I, to me, I think especially it's just the, the more people you add to a production, the bigger challenge it is to wrangle it all and keep everything and everybody on point and having them understand the shared vision that you're yeah. trying to achieve. The important part is figure out your budget. Mm -hmm. That's one thing where a lot of independent have troubles with. Mm -hmm. yes. So our budget, we had planned 145. We produced it for 145. We did not expect because we didn't know that after the fact the PR part would get that far out. Right. 
but luckily we were able to cover that. So that's the important part. It turned out perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were able to cover it. So we are set there now. Yeah, and now is the point where uh, Michael Ackerman said that to me. Now is the point where the fun begins. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's great when you come to that point. It was already fun with all the film festivals to, to go to Cedar Rapids. You saw we could yeah, walk yeah. to the front. We won in our category, the Golden Eddy. Mm -hmm. uh, that is fun. Yeah. Where at the Iowa Motion Picture Awards, I think I had to go four times. Yeah. I represented Rivoli there. Right. Uh, with Jörg. And I think we had to walk four times or five times up to the front and, and mm -hmm. took, took, uh, uh, the, the award. And uh, that is fun. Yeah. Then after the fact, uh, all the connections we built, the, the networking from there, I'm now with, with Michael, uh, with Michael, oh, your name's Mina. Uh, from from Cedar Falls, I think he is. Um, uh, we built that connection. Now we talk. Yeah, I see him tomorrow. He has an intern from Austria, so I see him tomorrow there. Uh, I went to to uh, out to Nebraska. Uh, shot helped with with the cross uh, as an actor. Just one day, just a small supporting role, but that's also a connection which came through Cedar Rapids. So we knew each other already and mm -hmm. they had seen already something from me. So they knew who is coming there. And uh, so stuff like that. And that's now all building and that helps for the future because whoever now does a bigger project, you know already there is guys, they have already something accomplished. There is knowledge behind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they get stuff out there. And and uh, um, they have shown that they can produce quality. Mm -hmm. And Iowa is coming. Yeah, there were, was before my time, before I even came here. There was this big scandal here when it came to to grants with Iowa. There was a lot of mishandling of grants and stuff like that going on. That made it very difficult. That's one of the problems we have here in Iowa: the political situation and the political support for movie making. Mm -hmm is very difficult yeah and the grant which is there the, the uh, green light grant i think it's called uh that is okay the problem with that is it's set in such a tight time frame and it's just not the time frame where actually movies are made right it's just somewhere different mm -hmm. yeah okay you can go and plan your movie now exactly into the time frame Uh, but that sometimes makes also no sense yeah, for the production. If you need snow, then it doesn't fit with that time frame. Makes sense, yeah. yeah. So and, and so that are things where, where I wished we would have a little bit more support from the political side, mm -hmm. from the state, yeah, where, where they would give us just some opportunities. Iowa has a lot of potential. But when it comes to movie making, it's all about money. Yeah. And that every independent movie maker, and that's one of the big hints, be aware of it. And if you don't want to get bankrupt on your project, before you start, figure out what is actually your target group mm -hmm. and what is the volume of money you can expect coming back from that target group. Yeah. You do not figure that out. That is like you go in a, in, in, in a, Uh, car sales place and you have $5,000 in your millfoil and you want to buy a car for $50,000. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's the same here. Yeah, If you produce a movie for $50,000 but it, you only have an audience which brings you back $5,000, that doesn't work. That's the same situation here. 
And that is where I see a lot of problems with a lot of independents that they just don't do the work which is necessary. And yeah. you can figure everything out by research. You just have to research. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you have to spend a little bit money in order to check out if your target group is responding. Mm-hmm. That's with little ads. Yeah. You create a Facebook page for your movie. Mm-hmm. You make a little uh, log line into it. You put a nice picture which fits for your movie to it. And then just put that as an ad for small amounts of money out and see how the reactions come. Well, let me ask yeah. you this about the preparation side. Because I, I was just thinking of this when you're talking about how early on you said how Reveille was able to have the luxury of having significant amount of prep. I believe you said three yeah. months or so, yeah. perhaps. Um do you ever think that creative people or just people that are working to get to the point of shooting ever get in a rush to get there? Because I, I just I just have to imagine sometimes that people's enthusiasm sometimes for a project can outweigh their more practical sensibilities when it comes to the timing of things that have to go into play. You know, we talked about cutting, you know, cutting corners or taking shortcuts and mm-hmm. stuff because some people see it as, well, we'll get something done quicker or we'll shave some dollars off here and there. Um, my, my question is about the preparation side of it is how much do you think being patient with the process comes into play? So let's, let's go here step by step. The first and most important is your script. Right. Your script has to be top notch mm-hmm. from the beginning to the last scene through the dialogue. It all starts with the script. All of that. Until your script is perfect don't even start to think about shooting it right that doesn't make any sense first the script has to be perfect mm-hmm. when you're at that point then you can go from there and can nail already your need on cast mm-hmm. and on crew then the next thing is locations right these things you can start to nail together mm-hmm. while you are doing that you can already check out your target group mm-hmm from there, when you figure out your target group, you can make an estimate what volume your and money your movie can bring. Mm-hmm. There are certain numbers, and you can all research that in the internet. The numbers are available. Yeah. It's not that there are secrets. Uh, there are certain formulas you can can use, and you mm-hmm. find them in the internet. Then you have already an idea. So, and if your movie has a potential, if well done, and that's uh, the basic thing, your movie has to be well done in any category. Sound has to be good, picture quality has to be good, color grading has to be good, the actors have to be good. If you want to make money with a movie, this all has to be top, mm-hmm. has to be the best it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can go and save some money on just creating value differently and i give you a a sample for that your script sees a conversation in the janky stadium when that is full and down there the professionals are playing Mm -hmm. that shoot for that conversation in the janky stadium with professionals playing down there will cost you a lot of money you do the same shoot at a at a community college mm-hmm. football play with audience around and you have the communication you shoot it there you will save a lot of money mm-hmm. your movie by your ideal is top the Ritz 
restaurant. Yeah. <clears throat> Perfect served or you can shoot it. It costs yeah. you a lot of money because you have to answer it. You have to make sure right. that and, 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 and. And you have the conversation. So the same conversation you can have in front of a McDonald's sitting on the walkway mm-hmm. eating a hamburger. Right. Costs you nearly nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is where you actually can create value and still keep the storyline intact. Yeah. And that's where, where, where independent producers have to look. How can I keep my storyline intact, but how can I produce them cheap? Mm-hmm. Any outdoor scene will be always cheaper than indoor scenes. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, because outdoors, you just have to look for a location where it fits, and then you shoot it there. Mm-hmm. Indoor, you have to make sure that your decoration everything fits, and, 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 and. Well, not to mention, if it's yeah. an indoor scene, and God forbid there's a window, the light yeah. has to be at the right time right. for the scene, especially yeah. if you have to reshoot it. That's a whole other factor that right. plays into that, for yeah. sure. So uh, so that are things where, where, where I just can, can screw in. There are, are ways where you can mm-hmm. keep the value and actually add value to your movie. Because yeah. if you produce cheaper, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you will still have, if your storyline stays intact, you will still have at the end the revenue from it. Mm-hmm. So you have added value to it. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing. Do I need... Uh, 50 people cost or can I achieve the same with 15 people yeah that's another point yeah where as an as a producer you can look do I keep it intact mm-hmm. or do I need it really you know there's different things where you can add value to your project and that is one thing you have to look for I was listening to a, another podcast recently. It talks about movies and whatnot. Um, it's called The Big Thing. I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's more kind of entertainment, kind of pop culture podcast, but it's very good. Um, but the the host of that podcast, he was making a point and saying that uh, with this latest Indiana Jones movie, this thing mm-hmm. had a budget that ballooned nearly $300 million, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, in my opinion, I think that's crazy. <laughs> um, but... I'm just curious if you could maybe talk about this for a second is, you know, more so on the budgets of movies, because while independent films, of course, have to be scrappy, they have to be creative in coming up with solutions to preserve the story and what we're here for, but then also making smart decisions to make it, you know, get made. But then at the same point, I feel like I see movies today that do have the luxury of having so much capital and money at their disposal, but it's completely mismanaged or they're not looking at it in the right way. And they sometimes will think that more money can make the movie be better. I don't know if that's always true. Cause I think it, you know, largely depends on the story that you're trying to tell and whatnot. And most people will tell you, well, if I have more money, that's never a bad thing. Um, but I just think you could stand to, to be creative the you know if you get bigger with movies i feel like the temptation is always to do more with the money instead of maybe being the smartest with it mm. does that make sense where i'm kind of getting that I, I i i think i have a very clear picture what i can answer to that yeah we started to look for rivale we had first in mind to shoot in the la, LA area in hollywood 
and the desert's over there, mm-hmm. and that was our first idea. And then we got a couple numbers, numbers, and then we learned what kind of permits you all need, and this and that and there. Mm-hmm. And Reveille, in the way we shut it, we have it done for now with advertising and everything complete, a little less than $200,000. In Hollywood, we would have looked easily at five hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? For exactly the same product. Mm-hmm. So, and that is, I believe, as you also can look. Uh, yeah, we flew actors from LA to Missouri, picked them there up, brought them to the location, and then started shooting. Mm-hmm. Still, we're able to do it for all in all, a little less than two hundred thousand, right? Then, if we would have done it over there, yeah. Yeah, and that is so the, the point where you also can look. Uh, I believe the 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 a lot of money in this big production goes also in in um, uh, for VFX. I think it's called uh, the trick photography, um, green screen. Oh, and, like and, the green screen, the blue yeah, screen, so, and yeah. all the VFX. So VFX. That's yeah. what it. Yeah, VFX. That's what it is. Um, there goes a lot of money in it. Uh, yeah. uh, then, then a lot in, 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 in trick scenes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you want to have nice action scenes, but how far can you go there? Yeah, as an independent one, do you have a choreographer for, for a fighting scene? Right. Uh, do you train your actors two, three days in advance for the fighting scene? Yeah. That are all questions which you have to put in the room. Yeah, I'm Do sure. you get actors who are already trained in that? They will cost extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, all of that where you have to look in. Where where that's where I said you have to look where you can where can you create value? Yeah, and value is not necessary that you have to spend money. Often it is mm-hmm. where you can save money. Yes. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, uh, so so there. When I hear 300 million, then I'm asking myself, where did that money went? Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot because probably goes to the marketing. Yeah. yeah that, for, that, of yeah. course. Yeah. I, I guess at least one third of that movie's marketing. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. So at least. So that would be my guess. I don't know the exact number. Right. But I would guess at least one third. But then we are still talking 200 million. And I'm asking, where is that going? Right. Uh, that's, of course, a listed actor. Name actor, there you talk already big money. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, if you have an A-lister, makes it very easier to market the movie after the fact. Of course, they yeah. got name recognition. Yep. That's what it is. So, yeah. uh, I would love to have an A-listed actor, but that means, and also, if you want to have a name actor in it, yeah. you need to go unionized. Yes. They don't come if you are not in a union. No. Or if your movie is not union qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means then you stock already instead of 150 bucks right now per day about mm-hmm. for, a, for an actor, uh, you are talking 216. That's already $66. Right. Right, right. there. Day one actor. Yep. Yeah. Take that time 10, 10 days. Yep. Take that time 17 actors. <laughs> Yep, it adds up. Boop, 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 very, very quick. numbers are going up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that also this, this things where where the money goes and where you just have to look. Uh, for Iowa, 
it's very problematic with unions because the union is not represent here at all. The mm -hmm. next office they have is actually in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's like after all, they have in Chicago an office. Yeah. In Iowa is nothing. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing here? Right. Who is also also for the actors here in Iowa? If they would be unionized, they can hardly find roles here because who is producing here movies which are union unionized yeah but if they are in the union they only are allowed to play in movies which are accepted by them yeah and obviously in the climate that we have right now which we, we unfortunately don't have the time to get into with the, the strikes and everything yeah. and sag after us like imminently looking like they're going to go in solidarity with the wga yeah. but yeah the union thing is an interesting element of it for yeah. sure um because i i think anybody that you know takes the you know takes the profession of entertainment seriously and getting into the industry they know at some point having the union play a part in it is going to eventually be a stepping point to to get to a wider audience and whatnot yeah. But the, but the reason why I bring up just a balloon budget on a big motion picture and comparing it down to Reveille is just for at least myself, you know, money can sometimes really make a movie pop and, and really, you know, just sit with you more like when the money is used smartly to have a lasting effect, especially if it involves VFX and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I would still argue that a lot of my favorite movies out there, they don't require some you know some huge large pool of money to to get done um i really think as you had pointed out earlier it all starts with that script you mm -hmm. know the script is uh, in certain cases the bible right i mean if you have a really good story to tell to me the story the characters the emotion that's always going to trump any money that you blow on a special effect or you know marketing costs and things like that i mean to me a truly good movie is still going to be able to sell based on the characters, based on the heart of the production. I mean, money is, of course, going to give you that extra edge sometimes, and it's going to help you get there. Uh, but I don't think a movie like Reveille is certainly one that needed to have, you know, like millions upon millions of dollars in order to be good. Though I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure if someone came up and they're like, hey, we'll give you $10 million to make this, they're not going to say no, mm -hmm. but... Still, it's just I think there's something to be said about money being used responsibly on a set um, and not necessarily worrying that if I don't have, you know, tens of millions of dollars at my disposal, I shouldn't even go about trying to make the movie. I don't think that's true. You should still try to make the movie. Don't let money be a hindrance. No, uh, the, the, the point is really, I believe you have to figure out what is your movie worth, where it is going with Rivelier. I always had said, I, I told you, I have some of my money in Rivelier. Yeah, and yeah. I said with Rivelier, there's two things why I invested money. First, I liked the idea of how Rivelier was made, the story itself and the meaning behind the story. I really liked that. That was very important to me mm -hmm. because it shows the soldier and not any cliche. Mm -hmm. So that was very important to me. The the other thing is also, I said with Rivelier, Rivelier is a movie that will become a cult movie. Mm. And the reason of that is because it's so uniquely made. Yes. But historically so correct. Mm -hmm. With really good actors, even if they are not known yet. Mm -hmm. But it, we have really good actors. And the whole row through, it's not just that one or two stuck out. The whole row of actors were fantastic. Right. 
this movie will become a cult movie. It might take 10 years that yeah. it goes through the back channels. Did you see that movie? Did you see that movie? Mm -hmm. But it will get to that point because it is the first movie in that kind who goes so detailed and emotional and deep into the soul of a soldier in the Second World War that I ever have seen. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I believe it will go in that direction. For me personally, it doesn't matter if the money comes back tomorrow or in 10 years. Right. Uh, even if the money doesn't come back, it doesn't matter to me because I didn't put money in. I don't have. I put money in. I had. Makes a big difference too. Yes. Uh, I always put a warning out if people are going to the bank and start to take credits for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a different deal if you go to the bank and have a conto where you have can move money, force and back and pay a little bit interest to it. But you have to, it's it's like gambling. If yeah. you have the money and you can spend it and it doesn't hurt, you lose it. It doesn't uh, uh, yeah. affect your quality of life. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, it affects your quality of life. Keep your fingers away. Mm. And that is what I unfortunately see quite a bit in the independent movie making scene happen. That really? People actually go and... Uh, uh, um, they, they risk it all. They risk it all for a movie and then don't have actually done their homework yeah. to make it work. And that is I see often. So there is so many things which belong to the movie that's not just the shooting it's not just the script mm -hmm. uh, that is the cast that is the crew that is uh, editing that is the sound uh, that is uh, the PR after the fact the build up to it that is the distribution yeah. self distribution is getting harder and harder because of the much amount of, of content which comes available and gets more every year it not gets less it gets more right so it gets harder and harder. We are getting now another effect into it, which right now still is not there, but it's coming. That's uh, automatic uh, uh, intelligence, AE. Uh, the artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial yes. intelligence, yeah. yeah. That's now another factor which is coming. Yeah, sure which is. Which will bring even more content on the market. Movies are made today way easier which is a benefit we don't make them on film anymore we make them digital right the digital we have in the meantime cell phones which are so good that you actually can shoot a movie with it yeah <coughs> so but that also means there's more and more and more and more and more content coming yeah and so therefore be very 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 what you invest mm -hmm. uh, you can make a feature movie for six thousand dollars with what we have today available yeah it's possible mm -hmm. yeah if you uh, can use things you have if you can shoot it in your house you can shoot yeah. it with your car you have you with your clothes you have with, mm -hmm. with, with actors you know from around and and all yeah uh you can shoot it for six grand mm -hmm. the question is just do you reach what you want to reach right uh, so that's where, where you have to look when it comes to actors, don't compromise. Don't take friends. Just because you know somebody and sure. he's a good buddy of yourself doesn't mean he's a good actor. Yeah. If he's not a good actor, he you you compromise on quality for a friendship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that are also things where you really need to consider where is it going? Is mm -hmm. is that guy actually 
fulfilling my requirements on the character I have. Right. That is a question. Is he able to transport the message I want this character to transport? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my case, it was the soldier who is leading old guy, doesn't want to mm-hmm. be there, leading a group of young, unexperienced soldiers, uh, then gets badly wounded and right. slowly uh, 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 dives away uh, until he's dead. Uh, is your guy who you have that in mind, is he able to deliver that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> And that is, is, uh, somebody you just pick from the street mm-hmm. without training will not be able to deliver that. I think there's a lot of things yeah. that you just mentioned that are, are ringing true to me in that one. <sighs> Yeah, the, the, the non-compromising thing and just how serious you basically are about it. I think that plays a big part into making movies in general, especially yeah. especially independent ones, honestly, because you don't have the luxury of, you know, the, the you know perfect catering and like, you know, luxurious hotels and all this glitz and glam that comes with these big movies. Yeah. Um, you, you have to be very serious about it and be willing to sacrifice. You know, you have to sacrifice mm-hmm. your time. Uh, your energy. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Reveille being shot in, in 10 days. You have 12 plus hour day shoots. I mean, that's not easy. There's a lot of hard work that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, the best actors in the world, that's kind of how you separate them are the ones that are willing to get into the nitty gritty. They're willing to roll up their sleeves and do the dirty work in right. order to get the job done. And yeah. there are definitely ones that are not willing to do that. Um, eventually I think those ones just kind of get weeded out eventually, uh, from the people that are serious about it. But, um, another thing I also definitely think that comes with money and, and also success, I should say success, especially is let's say, let's say, uh, Michael Ackerman, right? The director of Reveille, let's say Reveille, when it gets released August 4th, it becomes a huge hit. It goes gangbusters beyond what anything would have expected. And then let's say, you know, someone comes to him and they're like, hey, we saw Reveille, we love this thing, and we're going to go ahead and offer you this big stack of cash to make this movie. What I think can sometimes come with a little too much success and too much money is that thing that you just mentioned is that there are going to be the people that compromise or put their friends in the movie or they have too many, as they say, yes men around that you're you're not focused on the artistic quality at that point you're just trying to get more eyes and ears on it and sometimes you you settle on things that you shouldn't have um i i think that can be sometimes very difficult especially for creative people to get a grasp of that on and that's again also to me where like you have to have people you can trust around you to really watch for your best interests and watch mm-hmm. for the best interests of the project not to get tempted by some of those other things that could maybe you know just put it in the wrong direction does, does that make sense absolutely with michael I'm, i must say when it comes to this artistic when when it comes to to the detail of script and all i know he will not compromise right where i see more the fear he's a young man the fear is that now people from the outside come mm-hmm. and try to take advantage of his success yes that is where i see the danger mm-hmm. yeah uh, as far as i know him i know he will not compromise on quality because that was one thing he was always behind mm-hmm. and mike burke's the same the details and all jörg and me myra yeah. we really we really focused on these things yeah and he's michael is also trained for that but what i see is is that if 
that really get sex sexful that people from the outside come and try to take advantage to mm-hmm. hook on to his success yeah and they uh, see a young person that hasn't mm-hmm. been fully tested that, yeah. that they don't know some of these things yeah. and they're like well we can we can right. like you said they just yeah. they they leech on yeah mm-hmm. and and the truth to be told we we had really when we started out we had one more person on on the crew as executive producer and that person didn't make it to the starting line okay because that came with the classical hollywood ideas mm. so if we would have followed his advice we would have produced Rivelé for a million dollars i see and uh then at some point we just recognized that just does not line up with the possibilities and then we just made at some point the point clear and said here listen that's what we can do mm-hmm. and up to there and if you don't want to go with us at all that's fine but then you have to find other people to do it with you mm-hmm. and that is when our ways departed yeah yeah uh, so uh, but Myra stuck from the beginning on with it so the first one was Michael Ackerman and Myra yeah yeah he contacted her and said hey listen I have here an idea I need help Mm-hmm. So and then Michael connected, uh, contacted Mike Burke. Mike Burke brought Jörg into the into the boat, and Jörg brought me into the boat. That's right. how, how this group basically came together. And then Michael Ackerman had from his studies, he, he uh, was at, at a movie school in LA, one of the big ones. I, I don't know the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and there, from there, he brought um, Cooper and uh, Cooper brought Noble, that are a cinematographer and the second camera guy. Yeah. And then Michael also found here in Iowa when we shot the trailer, he found Kevin Thorne. Yeah, which then also went with us to Missouri to do the full movie. Right. So that was right. great. Uh, so so there's where we had the basic crew. And then Michael, Mike Burke brought later on Nathan Frankhoff as an editor on board. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that is how that came together. That worked great. And uh, uh, then the whole PR, I brought Buffalo 8 into the game. Myra worked then with Buffalo 8, brought all the deliverables. All this bookkeeping stuff, mm-hmm. uh, all of that she did. Yeah, yeah. she is great at that. Um, and uh, Jörg was the one who took care of the festivals. He organized the festivals. Which ones do we do? There is also you have to be selective. Not mm. every festival is right for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, which festival actually brings you a benefit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just getting a laurel that's uh, is not necessarily a benefit. Mm-hmm. It has to benefit you in some way. Yeah. And um, uh, which festivals are don't you don't even have to try. Yeah, because they are so over the league that you know you don't will make it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for I would say ninety nine percent of all independent movie makers don't even have to try to do Sundance or Berlinale. That are two of the biggest ones worldwide. Right. Uh, because nobody from us is on that level to actually <laughs> just get selected to be shown there. Yeah. 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 That's of course mm-hmm. a dream for everyone. Yeah? Of course. Yeah. But uh, when you look on who actually landed at that. And you look a little bit deeper, you see that's mm-hmm. all studio background. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sundance is not independent anymore. That train is long gone. Right. That's all Hollywood studios with their small sub-studios and mm-hmm. they, for the back door, go in as independent. Right. Yeah. 
uh, and and so there there you have a lot of these things. So you need to be be very selective there because festivals cost money. Of course, oh, God, for oh, God, yeah. yeah, and you do do not have the warranty that you get actually selected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that you get screened or that you win something or so. That warranty isn't there. So you have to be very selective which festivals you are doing mm-hmm. uh, in order to actually achieve something for your movie. Yeah. yeah. And that's in PR again. So York took care of that. And um, so so uh, that's also we had different things we, we, we were responsible for. And everyone did his best in order to fulfill that. And that all worked together. And that's why Revelee made this bus because it came together as a complete movie. Mm-hmm. It got finished. It is from the quality good enough to actually make it out there. Yeah. And we got a good distributor. That's another very important part. We got a good publicist mm-hmm. who really brought us in the meantime to quite a few of the big uh, uh, homepages, movie homepages. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like movie web, what, what you saw yep. there. Uh, and uh, quite a few others. Um, we have now to see if we make it maybe into one of the big newspapers, which are known for reviews for movies and stuff like that. I'll be hopeful for you guys. That's for that. now coming up. So yeah. that's all this stuff, which is now coming up and we just can hope. Yeah. I think, you know, what I'll, what I'll end this on. Um, it's just, you know, it really takes a core group of people to sustain the making of a picture and to get it past not just the, the shoot of it, but yeah. all that legwork that comes yeah. after it. Everything you have mentioned, I mean, if it, it, everybody that's listening, there's a lot of work that comes after you hit the final cut on a film. Like, you have to really hold true and, and you have to be in it for however long it takes to do it correctly. I don't think, you know, filmmaking is like a lot of things. You don't want to rush it. You also don't want to necessarily over-prepare sometimes because then then you'll just never do it. You'll mm-hmm. you'll just become a perfectionist and go crazy. There's always uh, accidents that happen in movies. Uh, you know, Burnt had talked about how there's a moment that he has in the movie that mm-hmm. wasn't planned at all, but mm-hmm. the director loved it. So you have to kind of embrace some of the chaos that kind of comes with it. But ultimately, you really got to love it. You really, really got to love it. And I think that has to come through. Um, I think just from talking to yourself, I can feel that. I definitely think the cast and crew, if I were to talk to any of them, they would probably share a pretty similar sentiment. And I'm really honestly just pumped that this movie is finally getting a, a wide release. I, I'm sure, like, like you said earlier, this is the time to, to, to really pump the movie up and, and be happy about it. It's not yeah. an easy feat getting something out there like this. Mm-hmm. And you said that this is coming August 4th. People can see it on Amazon and Vudu. Is there anywhere else that they could catch Comcast it? Comcast has a cable. Okay. We'll, we'll have it. And then there's a couple more things in the pipe line uh, where we just wait now for for confirmation. So we don't know yet, but we are waiting. It's very exciting, yeah, though. So, yeah. Well, I I can't thank you enough for just allowing me to come to your home. I do appreciate that. It's the uh, first time I think I've actually been to Walford, Iowa. I don't know if there's anything around here to see. <laughs> uh, the there was a stretch of road to get here that was it was, it was very very flat, which is mm-hmm. fine. But you know, no no troubling weather or anything like that. It's a nice place. Um, I, I won't uh, go into detail describing this, but where we're recording right now, I had to walk through 
a lot of antiques. Yep. <laughs> a lot of antiques and a lot of teapots. Uh, mm-hmm. Could could you maybe explain to people? I just I, I want to end on that. What's with all the teapots? You have a lot of them. Okay, uh, that goes back basically to Bedet's mother. Okay, uh, she collected them, and he gave her every year for her birthday one of these teapots. So and okay. uh, that's how all that came together. But we have a very extensive uh, phonograph collection, antique phonograph collection. Yeah, you're going to show me one when we're done. You're right, yep. uh, with a main focus on Edison phonographs. Uh, we have a private museum here, so we are really antique buffs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we are shooting right now, we are in process of producing a TV series called T. Meyer, where we have three antique Model Ts, That's cool. Uh, we That's have the CS cool. <laughs> in it actually running. And this is all stuff we own or friends of us own it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. So, so when you can yeah. bring these things together and you don't have to rent it or to, mm-hmm. to, to, yeah. So, uh, to, to fly it in or stuff like that, that yeah. makes it easier. Yeah. And, uh, that's what's great in, on Iowa. Uh, we get a lot of support here from, from the people, uh, surrounding us. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we shot Timaya, the first part, um, the, the historical society in Hampton, uh, basically gave us access and they allowed us inside their museum to redecorate. Yeah. So, so that are things, uh, I, I don't think you can redecorate a museum in New York. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Not without yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that are things. So there is a lot of possibilities. You just have to look and most important, you have to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but we are actually antique buffs. But that has his, his main focus on phonographs. Uh-huh. Mine is on, on hand-cranked organs and player pianos. Okay. Uh, and York is music boxes and cameras, yeah. movie and photo. But all antique. Yeah. So I told you when you came in, I showed you the yep. one where, where Lene Riefenstahl was shooting this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in, in this airplane movie. Uh, that's sitting here and that is registered with UFA. So the re- register number you can look up at UFA uh-huh. and that tells you exactly in which movies that camera was used. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's German accuracy and bookkeeping, you know, <laughs> so you can follow up on all of that things. Yeah. And, and we love it. And that's also one thing what we bring into the movie, this love for history, for, 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 for this old, Material for this, this stuff, the kids from today don't even know about it anymore. But they will. They will. We can. That's, we, we, that's the power of film. Is you. You can get it. that to come across. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for Timaya, just to throw it in the room, very important part in the first part is the phonograph, yeah. which will be there introduced, and kids will see the first medium wherever sound was recorded on yeah our whole movie making today we have would not have happened without edison yeah that's what a lot of people don't know yeah edison yeah. was involved in so much development of so many things mm-hmm. and capturing the sound actually and be able to replay it yes as one of the big tra- i put edison always with, with a couple of guys the newer generation snow bill gates Mm. with uh, Microsoft, mm-hmm. with Windows. <clears throat> that was one of the big inventions which changed civilization. Yeah, Edison, with electricity, with the light bulb, and the phonograph, yeah. that were two big inventions 
which changed civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the whole music industry would not have happened without Edison. Mm -hmm. He was the first one who produced industrial level phonographs. Yeah. Yeah. He was the first one who put out picture boxes where you could, would, uh, like Diaz. Mm -hmm. He was the first one who actually put moving pictures on the wall. Mm -hmm. Not compared to what you see today as moving pictures. Yeah. Yeah. But he was the one who developed the technique for it. And a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. And so that's very interesting. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to appreciate the history and just know, you know, and recognize exactly just to your point that without these few people, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of people to create mass change yeah. uh, and evolve things. And, and I think, you know, we're at an age and, you know, point right now in time where it still happens. It still happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned artificial intelligence. I won't go down the rabbit hole on that because there's plenty to say mm -hmm. about it, but That's another instance where if it's used correctly, I mean, there's so many things it can save time on for sure. But then there's, of course, a ton of dangers with it because anything that's new that changes the way things are done, that changes the status quo is going to present risk. Yeah. But <clears throat> that's why we also appreciate history. History has lessons. It yeah. shows us the the pros of something, but then it also shows us the errors of a certain thing and how we can learn from that in order to keep advancing. You don't have that without history. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I don't got anything else for you. I, you've given me plenty of your time. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, check out Reveille. Seriously, check out this movie. It's going to be out there on Amazon, Vudu. Those are definitely things that I know you have access to. So don't come up with any excuse. Check out this movie. Give it a watch. Burn. lovely having you back. Um, and, and that, that's it. So we're good. Thank you very much. 